I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll look together today at verses 14 through 21 in a message entitled, The Fullness of God. So if you'll make your way to that passage, we'll read it here together in just a few moments. Many churches across the country today are focusing on the national Back to Church Sunday, encouraging people who have been out of church for a while or maybe never been to church to consider going back or attending maybe for the first time. And as I was thinking about the message that I wanted to share with you today, this week, I was considering some of the realities and uh, circumstances that we find ourselves in today in 2018 in America. There was a piece written by Kelly Shattuck that was entitled Seven Startling Facts, an Up-Close Look at Church Attendance in America. And in that piece, uh, the writer referenced a number of things that are pretty startling when you think about it and, and concerning about where we're going as a culture. Uh, for many years, maybe 50 years or so, uh, statisticians have said that about 47% of the American population claims to be in church. Depending on what study you're looking at, it'll be give or take a few points on either side of that. And it's declined some, but that number has stayed pretty steady. And when you think about that, almost one half of people claim that they're in church on a regular basis. And then you look at your neighbors and you look at your community and you see what's going on around you. You know that that can't be true. And there's this factor called the halo factor, which means that people want the researchers to think better of them. So when they're asked the question, they say something that's not exactly true, which is actually called lying. But at any rate, um, they claim that they go and they don't actually. But here are some of the realities. Less than 20% of Americans regularly attend church. Less than half of what the pollsters say. The American church attendance is steadily declining. I don't think anybody could argue against that with any statistics, at least. Established churches that are anywhere from 40 to 190 years old are declining faster than any other group of churches. And then the increase in churches that we're experiencing, in other words, the net number of churches that are being planted compared against the number of churches that are dying, that are many, is only one-fourth of what it is needed to keep up with the population growth. So we look not only at the net number of churches that are being started against those that are going away, but we also look at the population growth and consider church and attendance and participation according to that. But here's another one that I, tell, I think tells us where we're going without a spiritual awakening. By 2050, the percentage of the American population attending church will be almost half of what it was in 1990. So as a percentage of population, by the time we get to 2050, the percentage of population will be about half of what it was in 1990. Those are some concerning statistics. There's another book out there entitled The Great Evangelical Recession, which uses some of these same numbers and perspectives to give us an idea of where we currently are. There's another church writer by the name of Kerry Newhoff who wrote 10 reasons even committed church attenders are attending church less. And he pointed to several things that would affect us as well as a church. 
uh, greater affluence. So in other words, people have money, so they're going here and there and they're doing things and they're getting away more often and their travel schedules are changing. And because they have money to do it, they're less dependable in the local church. There's a much higher focus on kids' activities. Uh, the pay-for-play industry in sports is off the charts. Uh, everybody thinks their kid is going to be a Division One athlete and they're going to get a scholarship. And there's somebody who will let you pay them to tell you what your kid will get if you want them to. And the kids' activities are on the rise dramatically in the last 10 years. Blended and single families are making things more and more challenging where kids are one place one weekend and they're another, another weekend. And that's just kind of a dynamic that we're working with right now. Um, attendance is valued over engagement. I think this speaks to the consumeristic American mindset that I can just come and I can sit and I can participate on Sunday morning and then that's it. That's pretty much what my faith consists of. That's affecting attendance. And then there's been a massive cultural shift. And I would say not even in the last 10 years, I would say in the last five years that we're not sure exactly where it's going and the statistics are uh, pretty concerning regarding that. So where does that put us? And what is the role of Christianity in the context of our culture? And then what is the role of Christianity at large in the world? Well, I think sometimes part of the problem is people don't really understand the value of the faith, what it means to be a Christian, the very essence of what it means to be a, a disciple, and the value of the local church. There's some definitions out there about Christianity. One is that Christianity is the world's largest religion based on the teachings of Jesus Christ who lived in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago. I would say that's an accurate description. Uh, And then it's a religion based on the person and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth uh, or its beliefs and practices. And I would say that's also a pretty accurate definition. And oftentimes people are scared away by the word religion because there are many who don't like the church who have used the word religion and they've pretty much pile-drived it to the point that uh, people think that it has a bad connotation, when in fact the word is not necessarily a a bad word. It's defined as the belief in and reverence for a supernatural power or powers, or alternatively, religion is defined as a set of beliefs, values, and practices that is based on the teachings of a spiritual leader. And again, I think those are accurate uh, definitions. But I think many people just don't have an understanding of what the Christian faith is. We've overcomplicated it and many people see it as unnecessary. They see the church as expendable rather than God and his fullness being front and center in our lives. He's just something else that we have to do. And if if we don't have anything better to do, then we're going to be involved in what God's work is. And that's a totally wrong way to look at it. But then many people don't see the significance of the body of Christ and the church has been diminished. They don't see the, the significance of the bride of Christ and who we are as the gathered people of God. It was Jesus who said in the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So if I were to uh, really narrow down what it means to be a Christian, the, the very essence of what it means to be a Christian it would be that we would know God and that we would know his son, Jesus Christ, and that we would experience his fullness. That's what we have to be about as a church. That's what our mission is as a church, is to help other people know God and his 
fullness. So our goal today is to understand what it means to know God, to experience his fullness, and to make him known. Let me say that again. Our goal today is to understand what it means to know God, to experience his fullness, and to make him known. So we begin reading here in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our particular focus today is going to be on this phrase in verse 19, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Of God. The fullness of God is a theme in Ephesians. And to be filled with the fullness of God is to be emptied of self. It is to be crucified with Christ and to live a life of faith through Him because of what the Son of God has done for us. So this morning, as we think about being filled with the fullness of God, we're thinking about all of the good attributes of God all of the good characteristics of God, his holiness, his purity, his, his compassion, his mercy, all the things that we think about that are good in God, that's what we want to be filled with. Now, Paul gives us some specifics here that we're going to get to here in just a moment, but I want to remind you of what Paul's circumstances were. He was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest because of his missionary efforts to the Gentiles. During the day, he was free to move around the house with supervision of soldiers, but every night he was chained to a soldier while he was awaiting trial before Caesar. In his introduction of the book, he makes it clear that he's not ultimately a prisoner of the Roman government. He is ultimately a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is a servant of Jesus. He had a revelation for the church in Ephesus from God about the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ. And in verse 14 that we picked up with this morning, he begins a prayer. It's a prayer to God and notice his posture. He kneeled before God in prayer. Or your translation might say that he bowed before God in prayer. Kneeling is a sign of humility. Uh, Solomon prayed on his knees in the Bible. Ezra prayed on his knees Daniel prayed on his knees. Stephen prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed on his knees. So Paul is signifying here that he is humbling himself before the Lord. And he's asking some things from God, but he's asking specifically that these people whom he loved would be filled with the fullness of God. And that's our prayer this morning 
as well. In addressing God as Father in prayer, as he does here, is the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we are kneeling before God because he's gracious, he's merciful, he's caring, he's our Father who provides us everything that we could need. He invites us to come into his presence as his children with confidence. And every family in heaven and on earth that is referenced here is the spiritual family of God. These are the children of God. So we're going to ask this question as we look at this passage in depth. If we know God through his son, Jesus Christ, how can we experience his fullness? If in fact, this is the prayer, this is the desire, this is the hope, then how can we experience his fullness? Well, the first way is this, and this is the first thing that you experience in God. In the fullness of God, you will experience his abundance. Look again in verse 16. He says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now, I think sometimes we read the Bible and we just kind of skim over it and we don't think about the, the, the magnitude of a statement like this. We, we don't think about the extent of what is being prayed because he's praying that we would be granted, that the church would be granted God's riches in his glory. And God's riches are astounding. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul presents this book, he outlines some of the riches that are found in Christ. He says in verse 3 that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Now think about the most wealthy person that you know. Maybe it's the guy that uh, started Amazon or, or maybe Bill Gates just came to mind or Warren Buffett or maybe some international figure that you've heard of that's one of the richest people in the world. The wealth that they have, even as great as it is from our perspective, is so small. This is talking about all of the riches of the things that ultimately matter, the spiritual riches as well as the eternal riches that we have in Christ. That's what we've been blessed with in him. And verse 7 of chapter 1 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. So we are redeemed back from our sin. We are rescued from our lost condition. We have the forgiveness of trespasses. So we are forgiven. And you know what the Bible says? Forgive as you've been forgiven. So not only are we forgiven, but we're given the freedom to forgive others because God has forgiven us of so much. And this is according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 1 and verse 9 says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, the mystery of God is great. The, the depth of the wisdom of God and, and his, his knowledge is beyond our understanding fully. But we are revealed, have been revealed to us, we have had revealed to us the very mystery of the knowledge of God's will. So we're saved. We're told how we're to live. We're given direction for the future. And the Spirit of God is with us along the way. And in him we have received an inheritance. And then chapter 1 and verse 16 says that we are strengthened with power. So we have an abundance that has been given to us from God. And when we don't live for him, we're saying to him, we do not either understand what he's done for us 
or we don't care. One of the two. Now, God grants us salvation. He shows us his will and he promises us a great future and a hope. Verse 16 of our passage that is before us today prays that we would be strengthened with power in our inner being through the Spirit. Now, think about it this way. We are physical beings, obviously. That's what we can see. But we are also spiritual beings. Now, put this in perspective as well, because the physical that we can see is temporary. The spiritual that we cannot see is eternal. So God has given us the physical, which is temporary in this life, to house the spiritual, which we cannot see, which is eternal and will last forever and ever. But yet people are obsessed with the physical. It's really phenomenal. U.S. healthcare spending is around $3.4 trillion a year. That amounts to approximately $10,000 per person per year that is spent on healthcare. Or to put it in context of our greater economy, one out of every $6 in our economy goes toward healthcare. So we are obsessed with the physical, and that's the actual health care. That's not all of the extra stuff that people spend on themselves trying to make themselves healthier with supplements and different types of surgeries and things that are elective. This is purely like actual health. That's going to make you live or die. We're so focused in on that. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. God's primary work in your life is on the spiritual aspect. It is on the inner person. So if you want to know why it's important to be filled with the fullness of God, it's because God is doing a work in you as a Christian. And that work is something that is focused toward your eternal being, your eternal purpose in him. God cares about the physical. He knows our, the number of hairs on our head. He knows every need that we have. He's our good father in this life as well. But he cares infinitely more about the spiritual. Now, part of the point that Paul makes here is that it's the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us as a believer. So at the time of our salvation, when we are justified and declared righteous in Jesus, the Spirit of God seals us and baptizes us and guarantees our redemption. When he does that, he comes and he takes up residence in our lives. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have spiritual life, growth, and strength through the indwelling spirit. And I love the opening song set this morning as we were worshiping toward the thought of who the spirit is and what the spirit does for us. And this is part of what it means to be filled with the fullness of God is to have a biblical understanding that is grounded in truth that recognizes what the spirit does in us and who he is and how we're to depend on him. But then he says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Jesus enters our hearts at the moment of salvation. So he dwells in us through 
the Spirit. And there's been a lot of controversy in recent years about praying and asking Jesus to come into your heart. And in a sense, I would agree that that can be somewhat confusing, especially to children if we're not careful to explain it. But right here in verse 17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's a biblical statement. And what it is, is it's an understanding that Jesus enters our hearts at the moments that we are saved so that he dwells in us through the spirit. And there were two ancient words that communicated the idea uh, to live in. One of the ancient words that was used was more in reference like to a temporary guest. Might be a a drop by guest or somebody that's only there uh, temporarily. But the other word has the idea of making it a permanent home. The word dwell here is the idea more related to Jesus being permanently at home in your heart. Now, if you have a house guest that you uh, particularly love, maybe it's a family member or a close friend and they've come to be at your house and maybe you've got to go out during the day, but they're going to be there through the day and you say to them, make yourself at home. Now, you're not just going to say that to everybody, but people that you love and that you welcome, you're going to say to them, make yourself at home. And what that means is, is that your home is as good as their home, that everything you have is for their benefit as well. And you're inviting them to be at home. And we should be living our lives in such a way that Jesus is at home in our hearts, that he's dwelling in us permanently. Robert Munger wrote, my heart, Christ's home. And in it, he pictures the Christian life as a house. And in that house, Jesus goes room to room. In the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds all kinds of trash and worthless things. So he goes through and he proceeds to throw it out and to replace it with his word. In the dining room of the home, uh, he finds uh, your appetite, which might be wrapped up in some sinful desires that are listed on a worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige and materialism and lust, He puts humility, meekness, and love and all the other virtues which Christians are to hunger and thirst for. He goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities, through the workshop where he finds only toys that are being made, and into the closet where he finds hidden sins are kept, and so on throughout the entire house. And it's only when he has cleaned every room and closet and corner of sin and foolishness that he can settle down and be at home in your heart. So my question for you today is this, is Jesus at home in your heart? Is he dwelling with you comfortably because of how you've received him and because you're experiencing the the abundance that comes to you in the fullness of God. The second part is this, in the fullness of God, you will experience his love. You'll experience his love. Look again in verse 17. He says that you might be rooted and firmly established in love. When the spirit indwells you and Jesus is at home in your heart, it makes for a life that is rooted and founded in love, which means that you're going to build your life on a strong foundation. Love, after all, is the first fruit of the Spirit. And I think love defines the rest. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's love that's the motivating factor for all the others, and that comes to us 
by God's grace. And he says in verse 18 that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. That you would begin to explore and to experience what that love really means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Or 1 John 4 and verse 19 that says... We love because he first loved us. God's love is, is immense. The prayer in verse 19 is that you would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. This is that simple truth that Jesus loves me. You know, sometimes people, because of their perceived intelligence and their worldly wisdom and their understanding of the age think that they have moved beyond the simple truth. Jesus loves me. And it's the most basic truth in all the Christian faith, but it's a truth that rests in our hearts and that will never grow beyond because we understand the depths of what God has done for us. Jesus loves me is the first Christian song that most children learn in church. And it says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What you might not know is that Jesus loves me was actually uh, started as part of a best-selling novel in the 1860s. A lady by the name of Anna Warner lived with her father and her sister on Constitution Island next door to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Every Sunday, as the story goes, Anna taught Bible classes to the cadets. And she knew that many of the boys could be killed or wounded in the war that was on the horizon between the states. She knew the importance of leading them to Jesus. And she wrote several novels along with her sister, Susan. And she began using a pseudonym uh, name of Amy Lothrop. And they wrote a best-selling fiction novel. And in one of the chapters in the novel, a child lay dying. He was at the end of his life. Nothing could be done for him. And the novel's main character, Mr. Linden, sought to console him. And so he sang, Jesus loves me, sprang from the pages. But it wasn't actually this novel that made it a song. It wasn't until later that a man by the name of William Bradbury uh, memorized the poem. And he was a music teacher. You might recognize the name William Bradbury also because he wrote Sweet Hour of Prayer, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, and more. He put Jesus Loves Me to music, and it became a staple song for children to know what the Bible teaches, that Jesus loves me. This is the essence of Christianity, that God loves us, and in turn, we love God. And because we love God, we love people. We'll never go beyond it. We need not complicate it. We don't need to clutter it up with anything else. This is who we are, and this is what we do. And then third and last, in the fullness of God, you will experience his glory. Verse 21, in the doxology of this prayer, he says, To him be glory in the church. In a sense, the glory of God is almost impossible to define with simple words, but we can state biblically that the glory of God 
is the beauty of his character. It's who he is in his nature. The glory of God is the manifest presence of his holiness. God is infinitely great. God is infinitely perfect. God is infinitely worthy. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 60 in verse 1 and following. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of God shines over you. For look, the darkness covers the earth and total darkness the people's. But the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your radiance. So how do we experience the glory of God? We experience the glory of God through salvation. What could be more exciting than coming out of darkness and into light? I think one of the reasons that we don't see more Christians evangelizing faithfully and sharing what Jesus has done in their lives with others as much as they should, is it's become dull. There's not a fullness of what Jesus has done. There's not an excitement of the fact that God rescued you out of darkness and into light. There's not a, a joy that you're experiencing the glory of God to be delivered from death and to be delivered to life. So the glory of God is experienced in salvation. And if we live our lives in such a way that we are recognizing the fullness of God and and we're worshiping him because of who he is, it's going to continue our lives and our Christian focus in such a way that it's going to bear fruit for God. And we experience the glory of God also in a life of faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That glory that you experience when you come to the knowledge of salvation is the glory with which you live your life. Everything you do, your vocation is wrapped up in, how can I bring glory to God? Your family is wrapped up in, how can I bring glory to God? Your relationships are wrapped up in, how can I bring glory to God? Your service in the church is all about, how can I bring glory to God? It is a singular focus. And it flows out of this fullness of God that is in us as believers, it's part of who we are. And then the glory of God is also experienced through the church. And I already mentioned that many people have jettisoned the church. Sometimes the church is her own worst critic. People are continually beating down everything that is wrong with the church, and it's an easy target. And we've so highlighted this idea of a personal religion, a personal faith, that we've forgotten that if we make our faith only personal and we rip it out of the context of the local body of Christ and the bride of Christ, it's an unbiblical faith. It doesn't resemble anything that the New Testament looks like. Because God calls people out of darkness and into light. He gathers them with other believers and the bride of Christ is central to his plan. And it's how God carries out his work in the church. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, the church of the living God is the pillar and the foundation of truth. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 24 and 25 says, and let us watch out for one another and provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So I say to you today that the gathered local church as the bride of Christ is the visible expression of who is a part of the family of God to begin with. We, because of our testimony and our witness, want the world to know that God is a good father, salvation is available through Jesus Christ, and that we belong to him.
And the church is the visible expression of that. The church is the place where we come together collectively to worship. Our soul will be starved if we don't gather with the people of God. We come and exalt Him. And I've been thinking so much lately in the last few months about how to, how to really focus in our worship services where it, it's, I see, and let me, let, me, let me preface this by saying I see so many churches that if you watch their worship services and you hear what's said, it, it looks like a whole lot more of an advertisement for a bunch of activities and stuff to do than it is a focus on worshiping the triune God. God's been stirring in my heart in these last few months to think about how can we as a church pull ourselves back here to the middle of, of life in the fullness of God, of, of an encounter with God when we come together so that we can be prepared to be sent out. And so it doesn't become about us, but it's about Him. The church is a place where you're instructed in the Word of God and you grow in your faith and you have accountability with others and you're in a place where you can be encouraged and you can fellowship with other people. And the church is the bride of Jesus. And I'm so grateful to God that I had the opportunity to grow up where I understood the value of God's people gathered together in the local church. And even in times where my life has not necessarily been where it should have been in years past, I had a deep love for the church that, that was in my soul. And I love the church because Jesus loves the church And you cannot look at the church and thumb your nose at the church without also thumbing your nose at Jesus. You can't do it because the bride of Christ and Christ himself are inseparable. And the church is central to that. Now, in the last couple of years, and I'm going to give you this and we're going to close, but the last couple of years, we've been highlighting what we call the disciples path in our church. And it's just beginning to be familiarized with some of you, but we're going to stay on focus. Those of you who've been around for a while know that um, I don't like the I don't like the uh, popular flavor of the hour. So we're not going to jump off on what somebody else is doing or just do something because it seems to be trendy. We're going to try to stay with the Bible. But I think with the Bible, how we articulate who we are and what we do as a church is encapsulated in that. And as you know, growing God's forever family is our primary statement. John 15, 5 is the motivating verse that Jesus is divine and we are the branches and that we are his disciples. How do we practically express that through this church? Well, we do it in four ways. Worship is one where you're worshiping personally, you're worshiping corporately, you're drawing other people in so that they can know Christ and they can worship God. And, and that's the knowing part, the learning part. We're doing that through small groups, which means that we are gathering together primarily on our Sunday morning event with our Bible fellowship classes and groups. And we're gathering together for learning and for fellowship and for ministry. And then we do that through ministry. So we're serving, we're using our spiritual gifts because that's what the spirit equipped us to do is use our spiritual gifts. And then we're living life on mission, both here down the street and around the world. So let me state it to you this way. Of those four aspects Some of you only participate in one, and that's the worship aspect. So what that means is you are only getting one-fourth of what this church has to offer for you as a disciple of Jesus. And you're going to have to determine somewhere along the way if you're satisfied with 25% of what this church has to offer for you as a disciple of Jesus, or if you want to engage further 
so that you can grow and you can be useful to him. That's about as plain and as simple as I can state it. And I'm saying it to you as a word of encouragement because I'm saying God's given you these opportunities. Why would you not want to make use of these opportunities? Why would you not want to grow as a disciple? If you say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, then why would you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm only going to participate in about a fourth of what I'm supposed to be participating in. You're missing the blessing. You're just leaving the blessing, just laying. God says he's got something more for you. Now, here's my final statement. God is able to do, according to this scripture, abundantly above all that we ask or think. One commentator stated it this way, therefore he is able to do all things and he is able to do super abundantly above the greatest abundance. That's that's as clear as you can make it. So I say to you today, you can know God, you can experience his fullness and you can make him known. That's who we are as a church. That's what we're going to be about and that's what we're going to encourage you in as well. Let's bow our heads together.